and we are presently employed in the Sermon on the Mount and more particularly in Jesus' teaching on prayer. As a rabbi, he gives his disciples, as rabbis would, instruction on all manner and all aspects of their religious life. And he tells his disciples how not to pray, and then he tells them how to pray. So in verse 9 of chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel, he says it, as a matter of fact. He says, this is how you should pray. And so we, we are in this study of what's known as the Our Father. So we know how he wants us to pray. Isn't it good to know he, he gives us instruction how to pray? He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Those words, that last phrase, your kingdom come, is the phrase I want to focus on this morning. Next week, we'll look at the next phrase, your will be done. But let me just suggest to you, when you say, when we pray that phrase, your kingdom come, what exactly do we say? What, what exactly do we mean? What are we praying? What are we saying? The challenge is to stop and, and, and think for a moment. Say, your, what is your kingdom? What, what is the kingdom? And I want to suggest to you that when we pray that, we should be thinking that God's kingdom really is his rule and his reign. And that we are inviting and asking that his rule and reign come in some sense in which it is not already present. In other words, that it come more fully. That his sovereignty and his priorities be more fully realized in our lives, in our families' lives, in the life of our church, our community, and then again to the ends of the earth. We're asking, we're praying that Jesus Christ come and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords as he is. Those are the titles that the scriptures give to him. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. We're really saying, come, come Lord Jesus. Just as John enunciates in the book of Revelation, he says, come Lord Jesus. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're, we're praying those things. And in effect, his kingdom, his will, should be the preoccupation of our lives and our prayers. Is his kingdom the preoccupation of our lives and our prayers, typically? What do you think? Are we always thinking about his kingdom? <laughs> no, we're not. We're not. When we pray, typically our prayers are about what? Or I should say who? Our prayers, for the most part, I think it's fair to say, are usually focused on us, on our desires, what we want, our plans, our purposes. We have a whole agenda that when we pray, we set before God and we say, God, here's our agenda. We don't say, Lord, your agenda, your kingdom come. We're often like tiny infants, that little infant that we dedicated this morning. And we have a, we have a, 
a plethora, if you will, of brand new babies in our church. Lots of young families are having babies right now. And very often we can be like those little tiny infants who know no other world but the world of their own wants. What happens when that baby doesn't get its binky? Parents, dutiful parents are trying to teach that, bink, that baby, don't, you don't need the binky. We're going to take the binky away. We're going to train you. That baby wants the binky. What happens when that baby is hungry and wants its bottle or the natural part and doesn't get it? Does the baby let us know? Wah. And we are not unlike those little infants when we go wah. We don't get our own way. One of the greatest struggles, I think, if not the greatest struggle of the Christian life is to fight the old sinful habits with their constant and unrelenting focus on ourself. We have no idea how deep sin and pride really is in us. Very often we just think of sin as some immoral act or some disobedient thing. No, no, no. Sin is this, is this force and this power that governs us and that is, God is defeated and he is rooting out of us as we learn more and more to deny ourselves. That's the greatest battle, the greatest struggle, even as we pray for problems and issues outside of ourselves, even as we pray for other people, whether they be our family members, whether they be friends, whether they be uh, Leaders, the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders, whether they be missionaries, as we prayed for this morning. Our prayers should be that of God's will being done in and through their lives. There's lots and lots that we can pray for. But ultimately, that prayer really comes down to your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And as we pray for each other, we pray for uh, these people in our lives. We pray that they would think and speak and act in accordance with God's kingdom and his will. Lord, help them. The best thing that we could pray for any person is that God's kingdom would be advanced in their life and through their life. That's the best thing that you and I can pray for any person. They have cancer. Pray that God's kingdom would come more fully in their life. Does God know what's going on? Absolutely. He gives us the model prayer. He gives us this prayer. And right up at the top, he tells us, you pray this way, your kingdom come, and your will be done. What do you think is the greatest opposition to God's kingdom? What would be the greatest opposition to God's kingdom? Well, just look in your own life. What, what's the greatest opposition to God's kingdom? This present world, isn't it? And who is the ruler of this present world? The devil. If you don't believe in a personal devil, he's got you really fooled. The Bible clearly talks about this present world and the ruler of this world. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul tells us, now he's speaking, to, he's speaking to believers. 
He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, before I became a Christian, I was dead to God. I was dead in my transgressions and in my sins. I was deader than a doornail. Another way that it's described in the New Testament is that I was enslaved, imprisoned in this domain of darkness. And God rescued me from that domain. The metaphor and the testimony of the man born blind in John's Gospel, chapter 9, when he receives his sight, he says, I was blind, but now I see. All of these say the same thing, but they say it differently. But the reality of, of a human dilemma is that people are dead in their transgressions and sins. And he goes on and he says in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways, now notice, followed the ways of this world. Implication is we no longer follow the ways of this world. And the ruler of this world, who is the spirit, who is at work in those who are yet still disobedient. Great opposition. The essence of Satan and the essence of this world is opposition to God's kingdom and opposition to God's people. We talked last time about hallowing his name, did we not? God's name is holy. And yet people routinely take his name and use it or misuse it in a vain manner. Isn't that true? Even using God's name as an expletive. Have you ever noticed that people don't say, Oh, Buddha. <laughs> oh, Krishna. Oh, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> no, there's only one name that they profane. The satanic kingdom in this world adamantly, violently opposed to the kingdom of God and to God's people. It's violent opposition. Now if that's true, if there's this violent opposition, well then how does God's kingdom come? Jesus tells us. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, he says it does not come visibly because the kingdom of God is within you. We typically think of kingdom as some government, some external ruling power and force. No, no, no. He says the kingdom of God is within you. He builds his kingdom in secret. It's a spiritual kingdom. Luke chapter 13, Jesus likens it to yeast. Isn't it amazing how yeast works? You put you put a little bit of yeast into a lump of dough and then it begins its work and it permeates the entire lump. It's miraculous. He says this is, this is how the kingdom works. It works secretly, quietly. It's almost as if you don't even realize it's there. And sometimes we think, where is God? Has he taken notice of my problems in my life? When you think that God is least at work in your life. You think that the kingdom of God is least coming in your life. Guess what? It is. He's there. He is there. He is working. Again, if you go back to the second chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us that God is at work in us. 
What's he at work doing? He's at work in us so that we will actually will and do his will. God's at work. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is at work. It's advancing. But Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. In John's gospel, in his interview with uh, Pontius Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? He said, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not a geographical kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a kingdom with a flag and a dress and a world headquarters. Yet very often we want to associate somehow Christianity or the kingdom of God with a, with a, with a country or a flag or such. No human kingdom could dovetail with God's kingdom. And I, not even partially. Why is that? Because sinful man cannot be part of God's reign. This is why one has to be born again. Unless I'm born again, I can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You can't see it, Nick. You can't see it. You must be born again. You've got to have be spiritually equipped. And that's why we, we don't advance God's kingdom by simply trying to improve human society. And there's all manner of efforts. Many good and worthy causes deserve our support and our encouragement. But in supporting those causes, we neither build the earthly kingdom of Jesus, nor do we bring it closer. Even the best of such things are but holding actions that help retard the corruption that will always and inevitably characterize human society. Nothing's really going to change until Jesus comes back. Nothing is really going to change until he returns to fulfill his own perfect kingdom. This is why we say, your kingdom come. This is why Jesus tells us in that prayer, your kingdom come. We're to have a yearning and a longing and a sense of urgency in our heart for his kingdom to come. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that was at the very heart of Jesus' message. He tells us himself. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because that's why I was sent. You and I, likewise, are sent ones. What's, what's, what's the message of our, of our heart? Is, is that the same message that Jesus had? That we tell people about the kingdom of heaven. What a, what a, what a treasure to be able to announce to people. Always and everywhere he went, Jesus preached the message of salvation as the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. It's always about the kingdom of heaven. Does God now rule over all of creation? Has God always ruled over all of creation? You think so? Are we in agreement on that? Did he create it all? Does he control it all? Does he order it all? Does he hold it all together? Okay. Anybody have any doubts about that? We're in agreement. Question. Is God now ruling on earth as he rules in heaven? Well, wait a minute. We just said that he controls everything. He's sovereign. 
Does he right now rule on earth as he rules in heaven? There seems to be some conflict here. How shall I resolve this? Let's go to a vote. All right. How many vote yes that he is ruling on earth as he rules in heaven right now? How many vote no, he is not ruling on earth as he rules in heaven right now? How many are not sure? How many are just too chicken to vote? What does he tell us to pray? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication is what? He is not now ruling on earth as he rules in heaven. You say, how can that be? I don't know. (laughs) And it is the divine earthly kingdom that we are to pray will finally come. He does give us a picture. He points to it. He talks to us about it. That he is going to create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Your kingdom come. That phrase and the Greek of that verse could be translated, let your kingdom come now. Whoa. Let your kingdom come now. Wait a minute. There's still some things I want to get done. Let your kingdom come now. You see, it's a measure of where your heart is if you could pray that or if you say, I'm not ready yet. Does that make sense? We would like to hope that all of us wholeheartedly would love to see his kingdom come now. Would it be glorious to be translated right here? We're right here in the worship service and all of a sudden Jesus comes and boom, we're all changed. Who would regret that? Who would say, no? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that would be a testimony, wouldn't it? How is God's kingdom characterized? When we, pray, when we say your kingdom come, how, how does that king, how's that kingdom characterized? How do we understand that kingdom? Again, we go to the Bible and the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, he's saying it's not a matter of worldly cares and transient things. I am really hungry right now. And I'm going to have lunch in just a little while. I'm looking forward to lunch. I'm going to have a taco burrito. (laughs) Wet with guacamole. (laughs) Chips and salsa. And a Diet Coke, because you have to cut corners someplace. 
Now, as much in the back of my head as I'm thinking about lunch and can hardly wait, and man, my stomach is growling right now, I promise you. I'm going to get to that burrito, it's going to be gone in a heartbeat, isn't it? It's a transient thing. You see, life isn't just about eating and drinking. It's not about temporal, transient things. Paul goes on to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. He says, it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's just not righteousness, peace, and joy. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, you must be in the Spirit. Righteousness. We have been given a categorical righteousness by God just by being as a Christian. We're declared righteous. But there's a practical righteousness that must also mark our lives. Would you agree? The Bible talks about that again and again and again. And a practical righteousness implies something else. It implies repentance. Otherwise, we're no different from the hypocrites that Jesus is talking about. Every single one of us battles our flesh. Every single one of us, every day, battles against these sinful proclivities and tendencies that are with us. We battle them, we battle them, we battle them. And sometimes we give in to them, and that requires repentance. That requires a genuine going before Him and saying, Lord, I did it again. I did it again. I am truly sorry. I confess it to you. And thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So that now, once again, I can embrace a practical righteousness. Which is a mark, a characteristic of the heaven, of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Peace. Peace. The Apostle Paul talks about a peace that guards our mind and heart in Christ Jesus. Peace, part of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm in the Spirit. I have a choice to be anxious or to know peace. The more devoted I am to God's kingdom and to God's will, what do you think I'm going to experience? Peace. My life is going to give evidence not only of the righteousness of God, but all the peace of God. Jesus tells us, and we'll read this later on in the sixth chapter of Matthew, he says, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, if I'm confident and know that God loves me, He's sovereign, He's on the throne, He rules, He has a plan and a purpose, He's at work in my life, He has a plan that He's working out in me and through me, what do I have to be anxious about? Except that there's a conflict in my life between what I want and what He wants. We call that cognitive dissonance. <laughs> I can't hold these two things together. Peace. Peace. I can make a choice because of what God says in His Word. I can make a choice I can refuse to be anxious. Though I'm tempted to be, I can say, nope. No, your kingdom come. 
Your kingdom come. I will not be anxious about anything. God, I know that you've got everything under control. I refuse to be anxious. Righteousness, peace. And what's the third one? Joy. Man, if I'm, if I'm living out the practical righteousness, I want you to know there's a progression of events here. There's a practical righteousness that ought to lead to some peace in my life. Would you agree? And that should lead to what? Yeah, yeah. Joy. And again, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, he says, rejoice. And again, I'll say it, I'll say it again, rejoice. Why? He says, because the Lord is not far away. He is what? He's near. See, when you, when you really have a palpable belief that there is a, there is a, a God who is awesomely powerful and awesome in His love and awesome in His patience and His grace and His mercy and He loves you beyond measure. When you know that, you rejoice. You rejoice. But not only that, the kingdom of God is also marked by power. Again, the Apostle Paul characterizes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. Most of the time, Christians are all talk. And there's no power. There's no power for godly living. There's no power to endure trials and suffering. There's no power for witness. When in fact, he says there should be power there. He told his disciples before he ascended in the first chapter of the book of Acts, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive what? Power. Uncommon, heavenly power. The power of God. So you have to ask yourself. You have to ask yourself. Does righteousness characterize my life? Does peace characterize my life? Does joy characterize my life? Does power characterize my life? If not, you have some concern. Does righteousness, peace, and joy and power characterize my family? Does it characterize my church? We live in between the present and future aspects of the kingdom of God. It's been characterized, some of you recognize this phrase, it's been characterized as the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. Jesus says it plainly. He says, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now I know there's some debate on in the translation of that particular verse and in some interpretation, but this is, this is the verse that I, in the, in the translation that I prefer. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing, and who lays hold of it? Forceful people, deliberate people, intentional people. 
They see, recognize, they understand, they long for, they hunger for the kingdom of God to continue to advance and they realize they want to lay hold of it. And so you and I ask, am I one of those people who desires and hungers to lay hold of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? Am I one who is demonstrating righteousness, peace, joy, and power? Jesus says later on, he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is here. But it's not yet fully realized in time and space and history. It's broken in. It's come in. Jesus has come the first time. And we're anxious and excited for him to come the second time to finally put an end to all sin, all evil, all suffering. And finally, death itself. And for him to create everything new as he's promised. New heaven, new earth. To raise up our mortal bodies, change into glorious ones. We're caught in between. In between these two realities. The already and the not yet. We live in the tension of those. The perfect has not yet come. Again, the Apostle Paul articulates that in 1 Corinthians. He says, when the perfect comes. Then he goes on and he says, are all healed? He asks that rhetorical question, expecting fully a realistic answer. No, no, not all are healed. When, even when Jesus was ministering in Palestine, not everybody got healed. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's broken in. It's broken in, but it's not yet here fully. Are, do all obey? No, not, all, not everybody obeys. We obey in part, don't we? And it's a constant challenge to us to not just obey in part, to obey more fully and more fully and to realize the fullness of God's kingdom in our life. The Apostle Paul again puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, we we groan inwardly as we await eagerly the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you. Man, I groan inwardly. I'm going, when, God, when? I'm eagerly awaiting the redemption of this body that's failing. Some of you know what I'm talking about, having failing bodies. If I am to be a, one of those forceful people laying hold of the kingdom of heaven, what's my role? What does that look like? Well, Jesus gives us again some insight. He's already told us earlier in chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, become the salt of the earth, as if you can make yourself the salt. He doesn't say you will be the salt. He says you are the salt of the earth. Now get with it. But he cautions us. He says it's possible for the salt to become inactive. How does the salt become inactive? By, by being contaminated, right? We want to be pure salt, don't we? 
So we have to be careful about what we allow into our life. What we allow come into our eye gate and our ear gate. What we participate in. Those secret things that no one else knows about. That we must eschew out of our life. No more. No more. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Whenever we go someplace, because we are people who are eagerly, eagerly awaiting the kingdom and eagerly desiring and praying your kingdom come more fully, every place we go, there's a certain light that we give off. Or at least we should. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Bummer. <laughs> I don't want to be a follower. I don't want to be like you. There doesn't seem to be any excitement there. There doesn't seem to be hope there. There doesn't seem to be any, any resource there. You just kind of, I'm a follower of Jesus. Shut up. <laughs> don't be telling people that stuff. If I'm to be one of those people who are forcefully laying hold of the kingdom, I must be a person who realizes that my role, again, is to be in the world, but not of it. Man, I can't avoid being in the world. I'm not going to be a hermit, but I'm in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world. I am not going to allow the world's values to continue to put me in its box. Someone who is being forceful about laying hold of the kingdom is someone who is committed to sharing their faith and making disciples. We have a great commission. Share our faith. Tell other people. Share good news. Make a disciple. If every person in this room would make it their purpose, every person in this room, identify one person Talk to him about the kingdom, the benefits of being a Christian, having your sins forgiven, not going to hell, going to heaven. That's a good thing, isn't it? If every person would be deliberate about that, make a disciple for one year. Just read the Bible with that person regularly for one year. Pray with that person. Bring him to church with you. Take him to your mini church. It's not rocket science. If every person would make a disciple... We would not have room enough for all the people. We'd have to continue to multiply services. We might have to have a new building. My gosh, what a thought. Am I making sense here? Your kingdom come now. If I am to lay hold of the kingdom, I must realize and recognize the fact that I'm an alien and a stranger in this world. This place is not my home anymore. I've been plucked as a brand from the fire. I'm a member of a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of God. We're awaiting the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ. Our ultimate home is a new heaven and a new earth, not the earthly existence we know now. 
And yet we hold on to this life. We hold on to this existence. We hold on to this world. We hold on to our possessions as if, man, they are the end all and be all. We already read it's all going to burn, didn't we? It's all going to burn. I don't know about you. I don't watch the news anymore. I used to be a, a, a news junkie. It's too depressing. It's too discouraging. It doesn't matter. What matters is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> what matters is we must be about our Father's business, not the business of this world. If you're busy accumulating, 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 well, I'm buying gold, I'm buying gold, I'm buying gold. Why? I want to be secure. If you're trusting in your gold, you're making a huge mistake. Your trust is in the wrong place. They're going to come get your gold. <laughs> well, I'll hide it. They won't know I have it. They know you have it. They're going to come get your kids. It's already happening. Christians, the only people that it's legitimate to persecute today are Christians. And it's getting more and more obvious and more and more egregious. This is why you and I must understand that this, this world is no longer our home. We are passing through we are pilgrims. We're on our way to a much better home. This is why we pray, your kingdom come. Amen. The more invested you are here, the more you're setting yourself up for failure. But our involvement in this world does count and it does matter. Our very presence does, whether or not you think it, does restrain, in some sense, the full onslaught of evil. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he talks about when the restrainer is taken out. And there's a lot of debate about who or what the restrainer is. But when the restrainer is removed, all hell literally breaks loose. So in some sense, the church, even as enfeebled as it may be, the church still has a restraining effect on evil in this world. The church still can create thirst in the lives of other people as they see us living a life of faith. They see hope in us. They see us being diligent about what God has entrusted us to, laying hold of His kingdom we can still flavor the culture in which we live. By that I mean on a limited basis, we can see some measure of injustice remedied. We can see the poor and the homeless helped. We can see the sick healed. Our efforts, our efforts in Nicaragua are a drop in the bucket. But it's going to impact 50, 60, 80 lives. We go to Swaziland, the poorest nation on the African continent. 
ravaged by AIDS. Unbelievable poverty, filth, degradation of the human spirit. We're sending 11, 12 people there. How much difference are we really going to make? We'll make some. The kingdom of God is advancing. It doesn't look like it's advancing much, but if every Christian were fully invested in laying hold of that kingdom, it would advance much more quickly and much more powerfully. Our efforts here do not ultimately usher in a worldly kingdom. It's all going to burn. Praying for the kingdom of God to come is praying for the salvation of souls and that those we pray for, that they actually look at our lives and they see how the kingdom of God for us is something of infinite value. I'm constantly talking to, to young people and, and, and more particularly young women who find themselves involved with non-believing men. And they're caught up in these relationships in which they ultimately end up compromising their testimony, compromising their purity, compromising their life. But I'll win them to Christ. No, you won't. How can you say that? Because he already knows that you want him more than you want Jesus. It's that simple. You want him more than you want Jesus. When he needs to see and know by your behavior and your attitude that you want Jesus, you will not brook any foolishness from him. You want Jesus more than him. He's going to go, whoa. Whoa, this Jesus must really be real. This kingdom of heaven must really be real to you. If that's not where you're at, if, it, if the kingdom of heaven is not of infinite value to you, you are going to compromise at every other point. The question is, what's the point? Where do you, where's your price? At what price can you be bought by this world? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, he tells two short parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Wow. I discovered it. Whatever, whatever I have to sell it so I can just go have this. And then he says, tells the second parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. Are we all in? You have to ask yourself, am I all in? Is, is it the kingdom of heaven? Is it that which is of the greatest value to me over anything and everything else? Praying for the kingdom of heaven is to come is, is simply commitment. It's commitment. The desire of our hearts as Christians should be to respond to Jesus' rule and his lordship so that he really does rule in us as he rules in heaven. 
that we don't just pay him lip service. When we pray, as Jesus teaches us, we will continually pray that our lives will honor him, will glorify him, our Father in heaven, and we will realize that the kingdom is not something which primarily has to do with nations, peoples, and countries. It is something which has to do with each one of us. The kingdom is, in fact, ought to be the most personal thing to us. Not detached from it. This is the most... We all, we all, know, uh, we all know patriotic people, don't we? People are really patriotic for their country. And most of us have been patriotic, and some of us are still are. We haven't become so cynical yet. We all know people who are very, very patriotic. How patriotic are we for the kingdom of heaven? See what I'm saying? How patriotic are we for the kingdom of heaven? Are we laying hold of it? It's something that has to do with each one of us. The kingdom is, in fact, the most personal thing there is. It demands submission of my life, my will, my heart, my mind, my life. And it is only when each one of us makes that personal decision and submission that the kingdom comes. We pray very simply, Lord, bring your kingdom now, beginning with me. You don't look to the left, you don't look to the right. We're always looking and blaming other people and say, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, this. no, 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 no. Lord, bring your kingdom now and let it begin with me. To pray for the kingdom of God is to pray that we may, each one of us on our own, submit our wills more fully to him. It starts with each one of us. I'm done. Amen. Let's pray real quickly. Heavenly Father, we do pray that prayer. Your kingdom come now in me. Your kingdom come now in me. Lord, help us to be mindful throughout the day, throughout the week, and the month, and the year, that it's about you and it's about your kingdom. That we hunger and thirst. We eagerly await your kingdom. We live for your kingdom. That we compel others to come and taste of your kingdom and make their own commitment. Lord, strengthen us, help us to be faithful to you in every respect. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment or two.